I was once on a team with a very talented wrestler who had only one problem. He could not stay awake. It was amazing. It was, we'd be in the middle of practice, and we would look over, and Jimmy would be curled up in the corner snoozing. I one time watched him fall asleep in the middle of a practice match in the middle of the afternoon. It was absolutely incredible. Uh, and no, before you ask, drugs were not involved. Jimmy was far too high-performing an athlete to, to do any drugs. The problem was growth. This poor kid was growing so rapidly, he just could not get enough sleep or enough food. Uh, in fact, during that one season, the one winter I'm thinking about, Jim had to go up two weight classes, and he grew seven inches that winter. He had serious stretch marks all over his back and his legs because his skin couldn't keep up with his growth. My buddy Kevin McCalla <laughs> said to me once, I swear I can hear Jim growing. Um, <laughs> He just was growing so much that he could not stay awake in practice. Now, Jim was talented. He was so talented that he did pretty well during the season despite the sleepiness in practice. But when we got to regionals, he faltered, and he didn't even, he didn't even place at state. Now, it wasn't the bigger guys that undid him. It wasn't. He was so good, he actually could handle the bigger men. The problem was that he missed so much practice, he wasn't ready. In the match that eliminated Jim from the state tournament, I watched him fall to a move that we had gone over and over in practice. If he had been awake, he would have known that move. He would have known what to do to counter it. But poor Jim wasn't ready for the battle because he was in a stupor during practice. Now, I thought of that when I was reading Jesus' letter to Sardis in the book of Revelation. In fact, in, in the margin of my Bible, I wrote this, this life is our practice. We need to be alert and practice hard so we can get the rewards later. All God's people said? Please open your Bible to Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus speaks about all this to the church in Sardis. Revelation, last book of your New Testament, it's pretty easy to find. Go to chapter 3, and let's read verse 1. Write to the angel of the church in Sardis, thus says the one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive but you are dead. As with each of these seven uh, letters, Jesus describes himself using the vision that he gave of himself to John and that was recorded for us back in chapter 1. Now, Sardis gets two fairly general depictions. In your notes, uh, you'll see them listed. You got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. On the left-hand side, you'll see the title, Jesus Has the Seven Spirits of God. Now, believe it or not, some early Christians, not many, but a few early Christians took this depiction. They decided that this was declaring there are seven Holy Spirits. <laughs> yeah, that's not at all what Jesus means uh, when he says, I'm the one who holds the seven spirits of God. A pastor, a Roman pastor named Victorinus, uh, silenced all the nonsense by writing this. He said, the agencies of the Spirit are seven. There are not seven Holy Spirits. Now, according to Victorinus, here are the seven roles that the Holy Spirit is said to fill in a person's life, in a Christian's life. The Holy Spirit, according to John 16, convicts. He convicts the world of sin. The Holy Spirit regenerates, according to John 3. When, when somebody believes on Jesus as Savior, they, they are made alive. They are regenerated by the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, the Holy Spirit indwells, says John 14. If you're a believer in Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God indwells you, lives in you. Uh, he empowers fruitfulness. Christians don't do good things by their own strength. In fact, if they do, it's not really good. They do it by the Spirit. The Holy Spirit guides us, Romans chapter 8. He intercedes for us, and the Holy Spirit seals. This is beautiful, Ephesians 1. He seals all Christians forever. 
as being in Christ. Uh, Isn't that a great list? Here's the only weakness with it. And it's wonderful. All that's true. But there are actually in the Bible a few more things that could be added to this list of the agencies of the Spirit. It's a little bit like the seven hills of Rome. There's only seven hills of Rome. Those of you who have been there, there's only seven hills if you look at it that way. You have to combine a few or choose to leave a couple out to get seven. There's really about nine or ten hills of Rome, depending on how you count it. In the same way, just as there are more than seven hills of Rome, there are other activities of the Spirit that are mentioned beyond this. Because of that, some scholars hold to another possibility. They think that Jesus is using seven as a number of perfection. Uh, He's describing the Holy Spirit, who's given by the Father and by the Son, as the perfect Spirit. And and one argument for this, by the way, is John likes to record things this way. He enjoys the number seven, employs it often. Regardless, whichever it is, the big point is Jesus gives the Spirit. He's fully God. Jesus is also the one with the seven stars. Now, we discussed before, if you were here earlier in this series, that the seven stars uh, address either the seven churches in Asia that he's writing to or their lead pastors. Now think that image through. Think it through. Christians are meant to be stars, lighting up a dark world. Maybe that is part of what our Christian brother Vincent van Gogh had in mind when he painted his famous painting, Starry Night, because he added a church. Isn't this fascinating? If you you go to the window of where he was when he painted a whole series of paintings out the window of where he was staying, um, all this stuff is in the scene except the church. He added the church. He did it on purpose. Christians and churches are meant to be stars shining in the darkness. Each pastor, each church should add light. And each of them, look at the text, is in Jesus' hand. He has them. That can be incredibly convicting. Do we live as if we're Jesus' church? Is that how we think? Or do we think of ourselves as North Texas' church? Or as the Frisco Bible Church elders' church? Or do you, do you think of it as your church? When you, when you, and I understand what you're saying, but when you talk to friends and you invite them to church, they say, oh, my church. Is that what you say? Or God forbid, do you describe it as Wayne Broderick's church? That's ho- All of these are idolatry, period. This is Jesus' church. It is part of the constellation of churches that he has in his hand. All God's people said? Now, The city-state of Sardis is especially interesting, and it has a history that informs our letter. Uh, Sardis was founded on a really high plateau, about 1,500 feet straight up off of the plains below is where the Acropolis of Sardis is. It became wealthy, really wealthy. It became wealthy the same way most places do when they command the high ground. It just charged tolls for all the traffic that had to go by. So they controlled the trade in the area, and, um, and they were very proud of their strength. Later, they became really proud of their Greekness. You see, Sardis is an Asian city, but, but it was so commanding that it ended up having control over all of these Ionian Greek cities that were on the coast of Asia Minor. And because of that, they absorbed the Greek culture. On their coins, a number of series of coins, this is what Sardis wrote on their coins. Sardis, the first metropolis of Asia and of Lydia and of Hellenism. Hellenism, proud of their Greekness. Over the years, Sardis became ridiculously wealthy. They, they spread beyond the high plateau all the way down onto what they called the lower city. And then it grew onto what they called the second lower city. And you can't see it, but there was a third lower city down here. Then it came into the out city that they called out here. It just kept growing and growing. They grew quite overconfident in their growth. And this is what that got them. You see, way far away in Babylon... 
a little-known coalition of some people that people didn't know a whole lot about. Some people called the Persians and some people called the Medes. They got together and they overthrew the great mighty Babylonian empire. Now, Sardis knew about this, of course. They, they heard about it, but they didn't think it was a real threat to them until in 549 B.C., a guy named Cyrus the Great... Uh, and he was really great in many ways. Cyrus the Great pulled together his Persian army and a bunch of Medes, and he went up along here, and he attacked to try and destroy the strongest people in the area, which was the kingdom of Lydia. Lydia was the name of the kingdom that was built around Sardis, and he was going to destroy Sardis. Croesus was the king of Lydia, and he said, they're no threat to us, and he went out and met them right about here where the A of Lydia is, and Croesus got his bottom kicked, Okay. I mean, the Persians just destroyed them. I'm going to allow a professor to pick it up here, Robert Thomas. He tells the story really well. Returning to Sardis to recoup and rebuild his army for another attack, he, Croesus, was pursued quickly by Cyrus, who laid siege against the city of Sardis. Croesus felt utterly secure in his impregnable situation atop the Acropolis and foresaw an easy victory over the Persians who were cornered among the perpendicular rocks in the lower city, an easy prey for the assembling Lydian army to crush. After retiring one evening while the drama was unfolding, Croesus awakened to discover the Persians had gained control of the Acropolis by, here's how they did it, by scaling one by one up the steep walls. So secure did the Sardians feel that they left this means of access completely unguarded, permitting the climbers to ascend unobserved. It is said that even a child could have defended the city from this kind of attack, but not so much as one observer had been appointed to watch the side that was believed to have been inaccessible, close quote. Now, I only bring that up because it impacts the text, and you'll see how in a moment. People are not bound to repeat their ancestors' mistakes, but... There are attitudes that run through cultures and run through centuries of cultures. For example, 350 years later, 195 B.C., a guy named Antiochus the Great also conquered Sardis. Guess how he did it? He had his people scale the walls because he read history and he knew the Sardians haven't changed and they hadn't. They still did not have a single person guarding despite what had happened 350 years before. Here's the bottom line. Throughout its life, Sardis remained a state that was overconfident and kept a poor watch. They were like Jimmy the wrestler. Their rapid growth made them sleepy and overconfident. I wonder if that could happen in any other rapidly growing places in the world. It's just an interesting idea maybe to think about. Now, in the 2nd century B.C., Sardis was conquered by Rome like everybody else in the Mediterranean. Actually, that was a boon to Sardis. Their markets and their lifestyle uh, increased under Rome. They did well. They grew again under Rome. But 17 A.D., the city was decimated by a massive, I mean a massive earthquake. The emperor Tiberius sent a very generous, huge package of money, but it, it just... It just didn't work. Nobody wanted to live there. In fact, trade declined so sharply that the Acropolis up on top of Sardis, it was left abandoned, never was lived in again to this day. Um, the only industry left to them was tourism. Now, here's what they did. There was and still is a great hot spring down in the lower city. And so they started promoting the hot spring, trying to make some kind of money, as a, as a heavily publicized, let's call it a tourist trap because that's what it was. Look, they advertised these springs as visible manifestations of the God of the underworld. 
All right? So if, if you were Greek, you would talk to the uh, priests of, of uh, Hades. If you were Latin, you would talk to the priests of Pluto. And they would tell you, oh, yes, however close you are to death, these springs can bring you back to life. You just have to be in charge. You have to do a certain number of dips. You'll be fine. And this will bring life to the dead. That's what they said. One last context note that impacts our text. There is evidence in Sardis of a large wealthy and very influential Jewish presence. Uh, by the time that, that John wrote down Jesus' letter, we have evidence of a very large Jewish presence in Sardis. Okay, speaking of the letter, Jesus rebukes the church. Look at his first statement. First statement is really biting, isn't it? You have a lively reputation, but you're the real walking dead. Now do you understand why I took the time to explain the decline of the city and the hot springs that supposedly gave life, although they never did? The church is like their city. Despite a good reputation from the past, it is just a shallow tourist trap that doesn't offer real life. Sardis Church, Sardis Church is like a company that appears to have it all together when in reality their success is based on advertising and, and slick smoke and mirrors and manipulation. Ima imagine you're at the board meeting of a company, okay? And somebody reads a report, they bring a report that seems kind of troubling. This looks like a probl problematic thing. And everybody's kind of doing this when suddenly the chairman of the board says, What? That's not, we are not concerned. We are the largest, most successful company in the history of our field. And everybody laughs and says, Yeah, yeah, we are, we are the best. And then they dismiss the meeting. And as you're walking out of the meeting, you look at the fancy logo that's emblazoned in the floor of the conference room, and it says Washington Mutual Savings and Loan Association, which doesn't exist. That's the church in Sardis. They, they are the WAMU of churches, okay? Sir William Ramsey pointed out uh, 150 years ago, this is exactly opposite of how Jesus addressed, addressed another church, the one in Smyrna that we read about in Revelation chapter 2. Smyrna was dead and yet lived. Sardis lived and yet was dead. Nice summary. I trust you realize that could very easily happen to us. It doesn't take long for a sinkhole to form for a seemingly wonderful assembly to, to hollow out and die inside, right? Look, Smyrna that we read about, Smyrna, Revelation 2, as the culture decayed, that church just grew stronger. Sardis had a great reputation, but they're actually dying inside. Which do we more closely resemble? For now, I should encourage you with this. For the most part, church, you seem to be more Smyrna than Sardis. That is, as the culture dies around you, you seem to be growing internally stronger. And I would tell you, well done. For example, here's a letter I received last month. Got this letter. Wayne, I hope you understand the rare blessing that is Frisco Bible Church. I grew up in the same church my parents went to from the time they were in high school. It was in a small town <clears throat> where everyone knew everyone's business, yet it did not come close to matching the sense of community that is present at FBC. My home church was 200 years old. The Hessian soldiers exercised their horses over the stone walls of our cemetery. It was famous, yet dead. People attended because it was what was expected of upstanding members of the community. No one actually talked about their faith. There was no passing of the baton from one generation to the next. In fact, it was not until my dad retired and attended a Bible study here that all the pieces came together for him. I can remember him calling me all excited and saying, Did you know the Bible is mostly about the Jews? Blows my mind. 
Here I see people of all ages pouring into people of all ages. I see minds actively seeking and struggling to know our Father God. It is a beautiful thing. Close quote. As I said, well done. At least for now, the rebuke of verse 1 doesn't seem to be a terrible problem here. But what about the reproof in verse (laughs) 2? Read verse 2, if you would, please. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for for I have not found your works. Oh, this hurts. I have not found your works complete before my God. Jesus' second expression of love is to point out to these Sardian Christians that your works are incomplete. Now, that's a rather unique uh, turn of phrase in the Bible. It's not that they're doing bad things. They just haven't stayed with the good things. Again, the parallels with their city continue. Just as the city didn't complete its defense, so the church hasn't finished its works. And we don't know exactly what those unfinished works were. My pulpit team partner, Martin McDonald, speculates that, uh, that there were maybe the same kinds of good deeds that Jesus praised in the other Asian churches. So you look at the other letters to the, to the churches. Here's what Jesus praises. Sardis doesn't get praise. All the other churches, here's what they get praise for. Uh, for toil, for patient endurance, not growing weary, for not bearing with those who are evil, for testing and rooting out false prophets and teachers, enduring tribulation and poverty, enduring slander from so-called Jews, faithfulness in the face of bad circumstances, holding fast to Jesus' name, not denying faith in Jesus, love, faith, service, patient endurance, and progressively doing better works. Those are the things that he praises in the other churches. Now, whichever work Sardis began, they didn't complete. Here's what's really wild about the church of Sardis. Their works are not complete, and yet they are the only church in Asia not facing a severe problem. There are, look, look, there are no attacks by, Christ, by non-Christian Jews. There's no mention of Nicolaitans like there were for a number of the other churches. There's, there's no pretend apostles. There's no hyper-persecuting government. In, in the words of Miracle Max, you never had it so good, right? But having it so good has possibly worked against Sardis. They're lazy. They are uncommitted to finishing, even though they have the easiest road forward of any church. It it appears that Sardis had the least reason to be incomplete, and yet of all the churches, it was Sardis that didn't stay focused on doing God's works. Isn't it odd how the ones with the smoothest path can easily become the most lazy and entitled? The ones who have so much sometimes don't do as much with what they have. They don't continue to labor with joy until Jesus returns. Man, we read that, and all we can think is, thank goodness we're not like Sardis, right? I mean, in our rapid growth, very comfortable city, we aren't getting lazy at all. Or are we? Maybe we should pay attention as Jesus exhorts the church. Go back to verse 2 again. Let's read it again. Be alert, strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you're not alert, I will come like a thief, and you'll have no idea what hour I will come upon you. On the right side of our notes, you'll see we start with be alert. Jesus exhorts the church to be alert. He excoriates Sardis for being sleepy in in the biblical sense of of 1 Peter 5 and Ephesians 5. I'd like you to read with me. You take the underlying text, 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. For this reason, it, and the, and the it in context in Ephesians 5 is Isaiah. Uh, for this reason, Isaiah says, awake sleeper 
and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Very good. This is an idea that appears in many, many of Isaiah's passages. Um, Isaiah and Peter and, and Paul and John and I would assume George and Ringo, they all agree with Miracle Max. They agree with Miracle Max. We are mostly dead, but there's still time to wake up if we will get the great physician's help. Remember the lazy way the state of Sardis had poorly guarded from attacks? That overconfidence led to their defeat. A similar problem seems to be occurring in the church. Even in churches, even with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, even with God's words shaping us, Christians tend to become like the place where they live. Or maybe you could say it this way. We keep many of the characteristics of our culture even after we become believers. It's sadly true. And in Sardis, the cultural problem that is flowing into the church is laziness, lethargy, sleepiness. Jesus says he will come to chastise them if they remain sleepy. He's going to sneak up on them just like the Persians did. And friends, you and I are not immune to spiritual sleeping sickness. No matter where and when we live, we can be lethargic. I've looked at this a bit and thought about this, and I can find six causes of spiritual sleepiness. There may be more. These are the ones I see. Focusing on external things instead of character. It's very natural. We, are, we live in a physical world. We tend to think that way. Traditionalism or slavery to the past, those aren't exactly the same thing, but they, they work together in category. Lack of commitment to evangelism, that'll make you very sleepy spiritually. Love for anything begins to, to overshadow your love for Jesus. It can be a plan or a party or a person or persons or a program. Materialism, that'll always make you spiritually sleepy. And great ecclesiastical success. What I mean by that is, is great spiritual success, a time in your personal life or in your church where there was real joy and real success. That actually can make you sleepy later. You become complacent. Um, I know None of these apply to you people at all. It's amazing how none of these apply to you. But if, hypothetically, if any of them did, let's go through them and, and see which one would be most likely to apply to you to whom, of course, none of them apply. So um, which one is most likely you? If you became spiritually sleepy, raise your hand if your main reason would be a focus on the external instead of on character. You tend to look at the external uh, okay, some of us, yeah, all right. Um, our, our buddy down the street, Dr. Swindoll, he had a great quote on, on this external focus. He said, some people go through life with their eyes closed. They look but don't really see. They observe the surface but omit the underneath. They focus on images but not issues. Vision is present but perception is absent. Please understand, I do not mean to be critical of those who cannot go deeper but of those who can but will not. Jesus is pointing his finger, not at inability, but rather refusal. And this is a classic Swindoll line. We aren't dinglings by nature, but by choice. And therein resides the blame. Okay, let's look at the rest of our somnambulant sources. Uh, how many of us have a tendency to get sleepy because of traditionalism or slavery to the past? You have a, you're traditionalist, okay. Uh, how many, it's a lack of commitment to evangelism. You don't really think about it much and it's not, okay. Um, a love for anything can be family, persons, it can be good things, but it begins to overshadow your love for Jesus. Raise your hand if that one. All right, that's very popular. Materialism, come on, just because it affects other people doesn't mean it doesn't affect you. All right. Um, great ecclesiastical success, that one time back then, that mountaintop experience, and that's kind of limited you and who you are now. Anybody? Okay. All right. It, the, the point is that we can all relate when Jesus says to Sardis and to us, you have a lively reputation, but you're mostly dead. 
Your work is incomplete. So wake up. Be alert. And as verse 2 exhorts, strengthen what remains. My father-in-law bought a 130-year-old farmhouse that was slated for demolition. He moved it onto their land. By the way, the moving cost more than the house did. And he started remodeling it. Now, some parts of it were rotten and they had to be taken out and removed. But incredibly, the foundation and the frame were really, really solid. They were very strong. It was slow and it was really pricey. He did all the remodeling himself. Some of you experienced this. It's actually less expensive to just... He could have built a shiny new house for less money than he spent remodeling the old one, but a new house would never have had the character or the strength of that old farmhouse once he finished his labor of love. There are times to walk away from relationships. There are, there are times to leave a church. There are times to wholesale raise something and just start over. But most of the time, this is Jesus' ethos. He is a remodeler at heart. That, that's who he is. Jesus loves restoration. So instead of just running away, instead of destroying it all, we should strengthen the good that remains. Of course, that brings up the excellent question that you're asking in your, um, in your Count Rugen imitation. You're saying to yourself, how do you know what's good? Six fingers. How, how can you tell what to strengthen? Hmm? Good question. Thank you, Count. Verse 3 answers it. Look at verse 3, the first part. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Remember and keep what you have received. Now remember, there were lots and lots of Jews in Sardis, right? It, It would almost certainly have made this audience think about the great Hebrew Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, the great verse about remember, about hearing and remember. Let's read it together. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, all together. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That is the Shema of Israel. It's called that because the very first word is Shema. Shema means to to listen, to, to attend, to obey, and most of all, it means to remember Remember, hear and remember. Shema is to absorb something so that it is emblazoned on your insides. That's what Shema means. Hear, Shema. Look, verse 6 of our text in Revelation 3, it emphasizes the idea. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Shema, listen, hang on to this. You have received this truth from God. Yahweh is one, and you're to love Him with everything. That's what God's people should remember and keep. And why do we love God? Because He loves us. And unlike Him, we don't deserve any love. Here's how Jesus inspired John to address this uh, in another letter, 1 John chapter 4. Love consists in this, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Verse 19, everybody together. We love because He first loved us. Amen. As my old mentor, Dr. Wimp, said to me many, many times, you must never get over the fact that you are miraculously rescued by God's grace. Wayne, an idiot like you is loved by God. You never get over that, son. God, who absolutely should condemn us, loves us. That's something a believer in Jesus can never get over. That is something to remember and keep. In a a 20th century poem, uh, Jeff Lynn, a songwriter named Jeff Lynn, he captured this pretty well. Jeff wrote this, I'm alive, 
and the dawn breaks across the sky. I'm alive, and the sun rises up so high, lost in another world. Never another word. But what can I say? I'm alive. Suddenly came the dawn from the night. Suddenly I was born into light. How can it be real? I'm alive. We're alive. We must never get over the miracle that we are alive in Jesus. Remember that. Strengthen what remains. And then the third word that's used here is repent. Now, again, this is a church being addressed. These are believers in Jesus, people who have trusted and received Jesus. And we've noted this before. Repent is used far more often of believers' sanctification than it is used in the Bible of non-Christians turning to Jesus. The original term is metanoio or metanoio, depending on how you pronounce it. It's, it's a term for changing course. It's based on a Hebrew word that was about changing your course, moving completely back. But, but metanoieo is more than that. It's more than that. Listen, metanoieo includes, in the Greek form, it includes this word naus. It's a brilliant Greek word for mind. And that takes us to the real meaning of when you see repent in the New Testament, it's saying change your mind, change your thinking. And then from that, your lifestyle changes as well. But in this case, you're, of course, asking the question that is on Inigo Montoya's mind, which is, exactly what are they supposed to change our minds about? Right? Great question. Uh, thank you for helping us up the cliffs of insanity, Inigo. The answer comes in the rest of the text. Uh, here's what minds need to change about, verses 4 and 5. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not defiled their clothes, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. In the same way, the one who conquers will be dressed in white clothes, and I will never erase his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and before his angels. In verses 4 and 5, Jesus blesses the Christians. Now, verses 4 and 5 are likely describing, listen carefully, likely describing two different arenas of blessings, okay? Verse 4 is, given, is giving an, an incredible conditional promise to Christians while they're living on the earth. Verse 5 describes unconditional blessings for Christians in eternity. Now, as lovely as the promise is in verse 4, getting to walk with Jesus, it's terribly sobering. Look, it says, for some, Jesus will bestow the blessing of walking in fellowship. Only those who have not defiled their clothes get to walk with Jesus. Now, in the Scriptures, when you see white clothes or white robes, that is always a sign of righteousness imputed by God. It's, it's righteousness that has been given by God through faith. Someone has believed God, and He credits it to them as righteousness. And the shorthand for that is white clothes. Those who trust Him get covered in righteousness. But if one stops living in trust of God and starts operating by one's own flesh, it's like we are splashing dirt on our clothes. We're sullying our clothes I was probably six years old when my grandma first knitted me a fancy sweater. My mom was so excited, much more than I was. And she wanted to take a family picture with us all dressed up. She made, grandma made one for my little brother as well. So mom dressed me in the fancy sweater and slacks and nice shoes, and she told me to wait. She's going to get the rest of the family ready because she had, of course, dressed dad as well. So there, she, getting ready. she wanted a picture in front of the big rose bush out in front of the house. So I go out in front of the rose bush, and I'm waiting on my family who's taking forever. And all of a sudden, the creek starts calling me. It, it really was. It was like a sleepwalking state. I started thinking about this huge crawdad I had found the day before under a great big rock that was back around behind part of the, of the house. And 
And I just, really before I knew what I was doing, I was in the creek and I was having a blast. I found him, by the way. It was awesome. And I was chasing him around and making him swim backwards and having a great time. And then I heard my mom calling me. Oh, yeah. And so I got up and I ran up and I saw mom's face as she looked at my clothes. And that's when I realized I was absolutely filthy. (laughs) I mean, I was filthy. Now, mommy forgave me. Um, but our fellowship was not close that day <laughs> for good reason. For good re- She asked me to do something to benefit myself, to walk with my family, and instead, in a stupor, I wandered off and I ruined the moment. That's what can happen in our relationship with Jesus. He's told us what to do. He's told you, oh man, do justly, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. But when we run away in sin, we ruin the temporal moment. Those who do what's right get to enjoy living, walking beside Jesus in the family picture of fellowship. Those who don't, don't. Now, verse 5 is describing a different realm altogether. It's parallel in the same way, but it's heavenly instead of temporal. Based on how Jesus and John use the exact same verbiage in another letter, uh, the one who conquers, you see that? That's, that's referring to Christians. Um, if you trust Jesus, you conquer through him, not you. First uh, John chapter 5, uh, who is it that overcomes? And it's honikon, the exact same phrase that's used in Revelation 2 and 3. Who is it who overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Overcomer is a believer. Now, verse 5 describes three blessings that are going to come to Christians because we overcome through faith in Jesus. First, All believers, all believers will later have white clothes. Again, a known symbol of God's righteousness. But you know what's great? In heaven, there's not going to be any sin to sully them. All God's people said, amen. Amen. May it be so. It's, It's a favorite image of John's. John loves this image. Clothed in Jesus' righteousness, glorified Christians are going to be stunning for all eternity. You ever think about what an incredible honor it is that we are known as the bride of Jesus? The groom who clothes us in white? How awesome is that? Believers are also promised permanence in the book of life. You see that? Jesus doesn't use erasable ink. The book of life contains every single person who trusts Jesus because they are assured resurrection, because they are put inside, remember, sealed inside the resurrected Jesus, where he is, you are also. Thirdly, the conquerors will be acknowledged before the heavenly court. I love this one. God the Father and the angels are going to hear Jesus say, "Uh, this one's mine. This one's mine. I chose him or her before the foundation of the world. I set them aside, and he or she has trusted me, and they are mine. And everyone will acknowledge that. Isn't that incredible? One of our life group leaders sent me a great note on this. Ben Kitsada uh, wrote me, and he said, I read Revelation 3, 5 a couple of weeks ago as part of my morning devotion. The thought that Christ, the Lord of all creation, acknowledging me before the Father Filled my heart with joy and even brought a tear to my eye. As a Christian, I know that to be fact, but it still amazes me that Christ acknowledges me as one of His. Close quote. Isn't that great? All God's people said? Amen. Yes, verse 5 is great. But I'd like to make sure we close by looking one more time at verse 4. Don't forget the distinction in verse 4. In order for me to walk in fellowship and enjoy the family portrait with Jesus... In order for me to enjoy walking with Jesus now, something may need to change. 
According to verse 5, we are richly and unconditionally blessed. But verse 4 makes me think of something Clementine Churchill wrote to her husband Winston in World War I. Okay? During World War I, Winston had done some incredibly stupid things. Okay? And Clementine wrote her husband this, this brilliant note. She said, My own darling, I feel such absolute confidence in your future. It is your present which causes me agony. <laughs> Close quote. The Sardis letter raises four serious questions about our present, and I think they're questions you and I need to ruminate on in prayer. I I listed them at the end of your notes. You can see them there. Of what do I need to repent? What signs of spiritual sleepiness is the Holy Spirit exposing in my heart? What blessings do I need to remember, And, and what can I work to strengthen? Strengthen what remains. Let's pray about all those together. Pray with me, please. Go before the Lord God Almighty right now and just ask Him to show of what you need to repent. About what do you need to change your mind? Usually for Christians, it's a sin that you've conveniently rationalized and are calling not a sin. If you're a non-Christian, by the way, You need to change your mind about Jesus. That's what you need to repent about. He is who he claimed to be. He is fully God and fully human. He came to this earth to die for you because you can't pay for your sin. you're, You're not God, but he can and he does. He died on that Roman cross to pay for the sin that infests us. And those who believe him get to be placed in him. And you know what that means? It's really significant. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And if you trust him, you, you are positioned with him in the heavenlies, and you have the opportunity, verse 4, you have the opportunity to walk with him in newness of life. Trust him right now. If, just turn to Jesus and confess, I, I need you, and I believe in you. I trust you, the one who has the seven spirits and the seven stars. I trust you to have me in your hand. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, raise your hand, please, would you? Everybody else is still praying. Good for you. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for all the believers here. Friends, turn to God and ask Him this. What what am I sleepy about? What are the signs of sleeping sickness What teetsy flies biting my life, uh, making me all sleepy for you? Is it it focus on the external instead of character? Is it it slavery to the past or traditionalism? Lord, am I showing a lack of commitment to evangelism? Am I loving anything more than you, letting it be my first thing? What about materialism, Lord, Or, or past spiritual success? Wake me up, please. Ask God, what blessings do I need to remember? Shema, remember. Hold on to this. I know, I know, life's really busy. And it's easy to lose sight. But please, God, expose to us what we need to remember. And ask God this, what do I need to work to strengthen? Oh, friends, you and I live in a plastic disposable society. 
We are very poor judges of what is useful and should be strengthened and used long term. So ask God. Have him show you what you need to develop. Father, we are so grateful for you. We are so thankful that you have given us your son and that you have called us your own and that one day we're going to be acknowledged before you. And we praise you for that. And we pray that we will get to have the joy of walking with Jesus right now on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen.